With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, I'm joined by Michael McMullen once again. And uh, this time, we're talking about players we've interviewed. It's quite a free-form uh, format, this one. We're just sort of yakking, really, about players we've interviewed, what we've learned from interviewing players, the best players to speak to, and uh, I guess what journalists are looking for when they interview snooker players. So the media <laughs> discuss. Well, we were just saying before we came on, we we're going to start by talking about our first player interviews. Yeah. Mine was twenty years ago. Now it was at the Welsh Open, nineteen ninety eight, and I was working then for the WPBSA. Not something I mention very often, but I was, and I just started there. And uh, I went over his first tournament. I suppose I went to really in an official capacity. And there was a young player who was doing well called Paul Hunter. Mm. Um, who'd won a couple of matches and he was seen as sort of a rising star, and. The Bruce, who was my boss, said, why don't you go and interview him? Um, which was difficult, because I hadn't interviewed a player before, and Paul hadn't really been interviewed that much before, and he, he was didn't know... And the thing is, in those days, now there's like media training and all yeah. that, and no one in those days told anyone how to do it. Um, so, including the journalists, Including the, the journalists, yeah. yeah. So it was quite difficult. He was very shy at the time, just because he'd never... I think he, he felt a little intimidated, maybe, by just you know a journalist coming and asking him questions. And it wasn't great. He, of course, in the end, and not very, didn't take him very long to get really good with the press. Really, really good. Yeah. And it was always a pleasure to interview. But um, yeah, I suppose it was. We were both sort of learning how to do it in a way. Um, how did it go? It went. I mean, it went okay. You know, I didn't get loads out of him, but that was partly my fault. I'm not I'm not blaming him at all. Um, but yeah, I think the point about this, and maybe we'll come on to this during the, the podcast, is everyone's different. Every player's different. Some players, I think, get it. They understand what journalists are after, which is a decent story. And that doesn't mean a bad story, it means a story. Other players come in and just want to talk you through every shot they've played, which, frankly, no one cares about. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so that was my sort of uh, baptism of fire. Well, the, like. the thing about that is the players must have been queuing up to get interviews, be, be interviewed by you after that, because, of course, he won that tournament. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily take any of the credit for that. But, uh, yeah, he did, yeah. And, and, of course, the point with that was, because he did so well and won that tournament... 
and became a, a winner. He then got used to being interviewed, yeah. and therefore after that he, you know, he was great. He was really, really brilliant, Paul always. Um, so that was my mm. that was my first first time. Well, I started with probably the best player you could possibly start with, Ken Doherty, yeah. because he's just so good to deal with. Yeah. And I mean, I was a student at the time. It was nineteen ninety six. And we had a college radio station, and it happened, it was like a one-week thing that you did in your final year, and it happened to be the week of the Irish Masters. Mm. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to get Ken Doherty on, and, you know, record an interview and then run it during the Irish Masters. And unbelievably, when you think about it, I mean, I was just some student, and I could have been absolutely anybody, but I rang, I think they were called Q Masters at the time, yes. Ian Doyle Stable changed their name a number of times, and they just gave me Ken's phone number. <laughs> and yeah. I rang him up, and he was like, yeah, no problem at all, come round my house on Sunday. <laughs> Wow, this journalism's easy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I can honestly tell you that's the last time I was ever invited to a snooker player's house. Mm. Um, but I went round on a Sunday afternoon, and it was about one o'clock, and his mum answered the door, uh, who sadly departed mm. last year, and um, she said he wasn't up yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a Ken story. Oh, Everything totally. about this is a Ken Doherty story. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I actually, um, while I was waiting, I think it was about an hour before he mm. finally came downstairs, and his mum gave me tea and scones, and <laughs> she was telling me about some French woman who had come to the house to interview Ken not long before that. Now... Who has ever heard of a French yeah. snooker journalist? Yeah. And she was saying how uh, she was quite scantily dressed and she was asking her why she hadn't put her skirt on. <laughs> I mean, this was all before I'd even had the interview. I thought this interviewing thing's fantastic. Yeah. You, get, you get this entertainment. Yeah. But then the thing was, of course, this was the first time I'd used this, this radio recording equipment. Mm. So I started asking Ken, uh, you know, my first question, and then thought, this isn't recording, is it? And I said, sorry, Ken, I'm going to have to stop there. So, now it was actually working perfectly. Right. Um, <laughs> he actually seemed to be more comfortable with the equipment than I was. Yeah. But actually, if there's a tape of that in existence, which I doubt there is, the tape actually starts with me asking Ken the same opening question about four times, yeah. because it was only about the fourth time that I became in any way convinced it was actually recording. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was my starting point. But you know, what a great way to start. Yeah. You know, some people, and more likely in other sports, really might think, "Oh, this guy's just a student." You know, I'll have a bit of fun with him. And well, they uh, should. I mean, the, yeah. the idea of the idea of let's, who's sort of equivalent in the world of tennis, it, it wouldn't be a Federer or but someone not Krychek. too far off that. Yeah. Say Krychek because he yeah. won Wimbledon around yeah. that time. The idea that you, A, that you would get his number off his manager. Unbelievable. Uh, B, to be invited around his house. Yeah. Which is unthinkable. Yeah. Well that's the thing but you know there, there was none of this kind of oh you know I'm going to you know, I don't know, make fun of this guy yeah. or anything like that. I mean, Ken just was, you know, as he always is, was just so respectful mm. and so good. And actually spoke to me like he probably would to any other, mm. uh, you know, a much more experienced journalist. So, I mean, that, that was that was a great way to start. If it had gone, you know, the opposite <laughs> direction, you could be scared off. Yeah. But, uh, you yeah, know, that certainly gave me the, the taste for more, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed Ken a lot because mm. I did a lot of the Irish papers. And, you know, win or lose, he was always he would always answer in sentences, if you know what I mean. Yes, He absolutely. would actually give you an answer. And he wouldn't hide the fact he was disappointed. Uh, when he lost, it wouldn't just be sort of platitudes. He would he would speak honestly, but he would speak, and that's the point. You know, if you're looking for quotes, a you want them to say something, and b it's got to be something meaningful. It can't yeah. just be literally anything. It's got to be something that that you can use. And him and Fergal as well, Fergal O'Brien, you know, always very very good. And I think that's you know you're either like that or you're not. But I do think, and because Ken's gone on to work in the media, he was one of those players. As I was saying at the start, I think he always understood what the media actually. Wanted. He spent a lot of time in the press room, which may, maybe helped. He got to know the journalists. Well, even that day in '96, I remember him saying he was asking me because I was doing the journalism course at the time, and um, he was asking me all about it. And he was saying, "Oh yeah, no, later on in life, I'd love to be involved in media." And of course, he does his own sports radio show. Mm. I don't know how many people outside Ireland know about that, mm. but on 
on a Dublin radio station on, I don't know, is it Saturday or Sunday mornings, but he does say, and it's not snooker by any means, like there's some snooker on it, but it's uh, it's all sports really, so he, he's on the other side of it now. But what, one thing I really learned, and I'm sure you found this too, you know, you'd only ever really seen snooker players being interviewed on television yeah. before, and it's it's a bit more formal setup, yeah, yeah. but a press conference, particularly, you know, which is mostly print guys, or certainly was in those days, it's so informal. Mm. I mean, it really is just like a chat. And you get much better stuff there. And it took me a while to get my head around that because you'd go in and you'd see the likes of Phil and John Dee and Trevor Baxter and Clive. These guys have been around for years. And it was just so casual with the mm. players. And uh, I, I just couldn't get my head around that for a while, actually. But, of course, you know, you get far better stuff uh, by talking to players that way. And, you know, at that time, uh, you know, it was you know, a regular group who went to every tournament mm. and became so familiar with the players. So, mm. I mean, there were, there were no barriers there at all. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, it was all better in my day. Actually, correction, I do want to say it was all better in my day. It was different because, like you say, yeah. new, because newspapers actually had more power. So you'd have this little core group of freelancers who, who would travel the circuit and obviously they'd get to know the players. And also, and this doesn't really happen now, the players would come in the press room a lot and they'd sit in the press room and therefore they'd get to know the journalists. So that, that sort of any barrier between the two was immediately broken down. I remember seeing Stephen Hendry sitting in a press room one day, as was often the case. He was just reading the paper, and somebody, and I don't even think it was one of the regular press, just went up to him and said, Stephen, can I talk to you about such and such a thing? He just nodded his head. <laughs> Five seconds later, they were already into the interview. Yeah. Now, again, can you imagine that yeah. happening? And, you know, you're talking about the greatest player of all time, you know, in many people's eyes. You know, can you imagine sitting down, you know... Tiger Woods coming into you know a media centre yeah. you know reading a paper and Tiger can have a quick word oh yeah sure man but that's I mean, the it just great, wouldn't but, happen but that's the that's the, sort of the, the irony in a way that Hendry would come in the press room because when he went in the players room he would get bothered by friends of players yeah, like yeah. Ronnie made this point about the numpties and, and, and what, actually what, what one of the things he was saying was that you go to a, one of the qualifiers and all the, the aunties and the uncles and the mm. grannies and all, all come along they all want to get now selfies then it would have been autographs mm. and Hendry obviously you know was trying to like stay focused in the tournament. You wouldn't get that in the press room. There would be it's sort of almost an unwritten code. If he came in during the interval in a match, he'd sit quietly read the paper. You wouldn't speak to him. But if it was on a non-match day and he came in, then like you said, it was fair game to go over and say, Stephen, as you're here, would you mind sitting down? And he would he would always do it. Oh yeah, no, very very obliging. And you know, it just highlights I think the general ordinariness of the top yep. snooker players. Yeah. They're just really really ordinary people. They're not affected by it. I think that's something to do with the nature of snooker mm. and the sort of mindset you need to have. And you know you can't be you know full of big ideas about yourself, and very very few of, of even the greatest players you know ever have been. And obviously that's made our job a lot easier over the years. Yeah, although of course I say like on a non-match day, Henry very obliging. On a match day, <laughs> if he wins, brilliant. If he yeah. loses, oh yeah. Now I mean I'm not going to roll out the shrewd story again, <laughs> but why don't you? Why don't you? Because you were there as well. So yeah. Why don't you tell that story from your perspective? So what was it? It was against Drago, wasn't yeah. it? And now you were still the press officer yeah. at the time, hanging on, yeah. And I can't remember the exact circumstances of the match, but I know like Henry had had about 300 chances to win it. And Drago had a few flukes. He had a few yeah. flukes, yeah. And the crowd were really getting on Drago's yeah. side, actually. And then Henry comes in, you can imagine. And it's just know. after he's lost to Campbell 9-0 as well. It's just after he's yeah. lost to Campbell 9-0. It's the same year that Higgins has overtaken him as world yeah. number one. So you can imagine the mood he's in at this stage. He comes in, <laughs> he sits down. I mean, my word, I mean, the atmosphere. And there was a lot of journalists there. There were a lot of journalists, actually, because... You know, snooker was at a real peak in Ireland at the time because it was, you know, Ken, Ken was at his peak. So Henry comes in and uh, nobody says anything. Mm. But of course, you were the one who had the responsibility yeah. of getting something going. So you said, uh, obviously it's disappointing, Stephen. And he just turns around and says, 
shrewd. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was the contempt, quite rightly as well. Well, if you think of that, you know, sarcasmometer the comic book guy had in The Simpsons, you know, which just exploded. Yeah. You know, I mean, it would have just gone through the roof at that stage. And uh, and after that, a few more people tried questions. I mean, even Phil, who was really good friends yeah. with Henry and yeah. still is, I mean, you know, was asking questions, and Henry was just, you know, shrugging his shoulders mm. and just saying absolutely nothing. And literally, shrewd was the only thing. Most of us actually were sitting there with our heads down. Mm. Nobody wanted to make eye contact yeah. with you or Henry, <laughs> you know. And I actually, some months later, I went. Uh, I was looking through my, my notes, and I'd written down Henry dot dot shrewd and just presumably just to have something to do yeah. to avoid eye contact I'd actually put quote marks around <laughs> the word shrewd yeah uh, yeah no I, I never saw anything as extreme as that mm. you know in snooker or any other sport yeah. but I mean I, I'd had it earlier in the year when he uh, he was struggling he'd lost his first match in the Irish Masters and I asked him something or other and he just basically turned and kind of snapped at me a bit mm. but do you know what I, I think I don't think either of us really minded that kind of mm. thing because we were huge admirers of Hendry and we knew that was just part of what he was like. He hated losing, which was why he won so much and we yeah. just accepted that as part of the package. And it's almost a badge of honour to be Hendry's in those days. <laughs> well, it was a better story as well for him to say totally, one, yeah. one word than to just trot out sort of meaningless platitudes that no one was interested in. Yeah. Um, and he had earned the right to be severely disappointed, as you say, like a great champion. He's going to hurt if he's in a bit of a slump. Yeah. Of course, later that year he won the seventh world title. Yeah. Had a bit more to say then. Yes. Um, he's still talking. Yeah. Now, um, Steve Davis, uh, I, was, I didn't cover the sort of glory years in the 80s, mm. and it's interesting, towards the end of his career, he was the opposite. You couldn't shut him up in press conferences. I remember yeah. I, I had to walk out once, just because he was going on and on and on. And the, I think there were some guys there who, like, who didn't cover snooker very regularly and were just Delighted to be speaking to Steve Davis, and he sort of he's, he's, I've sort of got up and he said, "I had enough, have you?" You know that sort of thing because it just he just went on and on and on. And why not? You know, again, it's, it's, yeah, he's yeah, earned yeah. the right to, to say as much as he liked. But I, I guess it, uh, like when you're at the very top, also like you, you've been interviewed after every match, yeah. win or lose, any tournament you're coming in, and I guess after a while, and of course it's straight after the match as well. You know, yes. you've got no time to collect your thoughts. That that is the thing. I mean, it would be better in one sense if you could have half an hour in between, which is actually what happens in other sports, like saying football. Mm. You know, you don't speak to the players till half an hour after the match. Uh, in snooker, it's not really possible, and I think a lot of that is because certainly in those days when you know there was a lot of newspaper coverage, the deadlines were really tight. Obviously, a lot of the matches finished late, so if you had any chance at all of getting it in the paper, you needed to speak to the players straight away. And also, it's not like the players are going back and having a shower in the dressing room, mm. you know, straight after the match. So the obvious time to do it is straight after, and inevitably players end up saying things that um, that they regret. Uh, or that they look back on later and say, well, look, I didn't really mean that. I probably felt I meant it at the time. Mm. There's a lot of that. It's like Judd Trump at the World Championship last season, you know, when he refused to speak to the press after the match against Rory McLeod. I'm sure 10 minutes later, once he'd cooled down a tiny little bit, he probably regretted that. So in one sense, it's probably the worst time to talk mm. to players. In another sense, it's a brilliant time because you're far more likely for them to say something extraordinary. But, you know, you talk about Steve there, you've got to remember the difference even, not so much in terms of his, uh, well, not just in terms of his standing. When he was at his uh, peak... He was the most high-profile sportsman in Britain. Yeah. So, although it was a very different media world, he didn't have Twitter and all the rest of it, you know, if he said anything out of place, mm. it was going to be massive news. And, of course, he had Barry guiding him, mm. you know, and was very keen that, you know, there should never be any scandal surrounding him of, of any level whatsoever. So I think maybe that was, that was part of it, that perhaps later on in his career, he was less high-profile. The game was slightly less high-profile in the media. He had a bit more freedom to say what he wanted. And... Steve, you know, a bit like Ronnie now, you know, would just go off into all sorts of yeah. topics yeah. in his press conferences. But again, it was great. You got great quotes and great lines. Well, you've uh, you've dropped the Ronnie bomb there, so oh, let's uh, let's <laughs> introduce it. I mean, obviously, you know, there's huge fascination with, with Ronnie, and 
I mean, his press conferences, you could write several books on them, really, because they're... Yeah. Like, sometimes it's very much from the heart and very kind of raw, and I've seen him... I remember at the British Open in Newcastle when he was clearly in the midst of a depression, and yeah. you could see it in his face. He just looked in a terrible place. At other times, he'll come and have a laugh and a joke. There's clearly times when he relishes being able to just say what he likes and, and talk. Um, other times, it's difficult to get something out of him. I mean, obviously, last season, he wasn't saying anything at one point yeah, to, to the media. Um, he was singing, though. He was singing, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I guess all of that is kind of Ronnie's personality, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so unpredictable. You just never know what, you, what he's going to come out with. I remember talking once with a completely straight face about the prospect of getting married to Ray Reardon. Which, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, know. you can do that now. Yeah, well, this is it. You know, back, back then, it wasn't yeah. even legal. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, But look, if you're going to talk about... You see, this is the difference You know, with you know, a lot of interviews. It's one-on-one, -on -one, it's just you and the player. But most interviews with players are actually in a group environment, mm. in a press conference. And of course, there's one Ronnie press conference that I think you know, stands out head and shoulders above all the rest. Uh, it was the one in Dublin in 2004. Uh, he had played, it was Ebden, wasn't it? He yeah. just played quarterfinals of the Irish Masters and he conceded a frame, 10 red still on the table. And uh, he came in afterwards and I thought, well, look, you know, he obviously wants to be asked about this, he's looking for a bit of attention, so I'm just going to ask him straight away. <coughs> and I said, so Ronnie, why did you do that? And he said <laughs> something about, oh, well, you know, I wanted to get off and have a cup of tea and, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to take him up on this. So I said, but you didn't have to do that. You know, what do you mean you got to do what you got to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was nothing about that. So then he said, yeah, you're, you're probably right. And, uh, you know, maybe if I had your head on my shoulders, I'd be a, a 10 times world champion by now. Now, as you pointed out, quite where that would have left me, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, is <laughs> it, it, another matter. But there was all kinds of stuff then. He said, some days you're the bug and some days yeah. you're the windscreen. I mean, one of the great quotes that. Yeah. Um, then he invited us to go on a night out with him in yeah, Dublin. Yeah. Uh, there was a German guy there who actually asked him to repeat everything slowly so that he could understand yeah, it. Yeah, and bear in mind that it was about a half hour press conference. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I and think you got up and walked out of that one as yeah, well because yeah. it was something to go up and... <laughs> sort of People have got lives to live, here, haven't they? Yeah. You know? They've got things to do. But, but it was like, you know, it wasn't just Ronnie lending to the absurdity. You had the German guy, you had an Irish journalist who... That was the one and only season of a thing called the LG Order yeah. of Merit. One of the Irish journalists asked him, you know... Are you disappointed that this result will affect your chances of winning that? Mm. I mean, it really was. I think you wrote about it in Snooker Scene, snooker scene saying fans of the absurd would greatly yeah. have enjoyed Ronnie's press conference. But he was loving it. He yeah. was actually sitting there kind of smiling and joking all the mm. way through it. It really was a, just, just an absolutely uh, extraordinary thing. And then, funny enough, having conceded, basically thrown away that match, about an hour later he was on the practice tables yeah. next to the press room. No, it was vintage Ronnie, but I guess it's another opportunity for someone like him, who's a great crowd pleaser, to play to the crowd. Because yeah. you say, there were a lot of people there, and uh, maybe he, he hadn't enjoyed the match that much, but it was an opportunity mm. to, to kind of have a bit of fun. And I guess, in some ways, that's maybe what the players should treat it as, because some, sometimes they come in, and clearly they've got no interest at all yeah, <laughs> in speaking yeah, yeah. to anyone. But it is part of the job, and if they're wondering why they're earning hundreds of thousands a year... It's primarily because of the media, because yeah. the media showcased the sport. Oh, it's totally because yeah. of the media, because if there was no coverage, yeah. you know, there'd be no sponsors, there'd be no prize money. I think a lot of players get that. I mean, you talk to someone like Sean Murphy, mm. he's never grumbled about mm. speaking to the press. And, uh, you know, he actually pointed out that, you know, some of the players who do grumble should take a look at the example of, of Paul Hunter, who we mm. mentioned, who continued to do interviews yeah. and press conferences during the darkest thing you can possibly go yeah. through. Graham Doss. Uh, when he had a major illness going on in his family, came in and spoke at the Masters mm -hmm. and made the effort. And I think 
you know, I mean, that's that's so commendable. And players who complain about it should consider, well, look, you know, there's a lot worse things could be going on in life mm. than losing the snooker match. Mm. Mark Selby, uh, I think, is an example of... I mean, he now gets interviewed a lot, obviously, as world champion, mm. world number one. But I think he's an example of someone whose maybe personality doesn't come out as much in interviews because yeah. I think he sometimes feels a little bit on edge by it. I don't know. You know, you've seen Mark at the Championship League at the moment. Backstage, he is kind of the jester, isn't he? He's having, mm. having fun and very nice to everybody, treats everyone the same. Sure. Maybe he's an example of someone who maybe just closes up a little bit. Mark Williams could be a bit like that as well at times in interviews. Yeah, yeah. No, they're definitely true. Actually, both of those would be the best examples of that. Mm. Um, you know, but again, you know, they've they've come into a very different environment now that you know everything gets picked up on, and you know, people aren't interested <coughs> now. A lot of people, certainly in media and social media, in uh, you know, hearing you make positive comments, they're only interested in catching you out yeah and you know that's the environment that you know top sports people are dealing in now mark is you know probably next to ronnie the most high profile player there is and you know he's all about the snooker he wants to be out there winning matches he doesn't want to do anything he's got nothing to gain by saying anything that's going to get him in any sort of trouble whatsoever and he just plays it very straight which it which is a bit of a shame and you know it, it would be good to see him um you know bring out a bit more of that personality but you can totally understand uh why he does it i think that's the thing with social media now that journalists would used to sort of lead. They would ask questions at press conference and they'd go and report what had been said. Now, the tendency is a lot of journalists have to follow what players are putting out themselves, sports people are putting out themselves on social media. And for, for anything that's been said in a press conference, there could be something sort of bigger just been said on Twitter that then yeah. suddenly everyone has read and you've got to sort of react to. But you, you, you're not... You don't have any part in that conversation. You're just sort of observing it, really. Well, I read a book by Neil Harmon, the tennis journalist, recently, and he was saying he almost doesn't bother with press conferences mm. now that he would have enough of a relationship with the players that he'd collar them for a word on the way out of the press conference. Because as he was pointing out, everything, you know, good or bad, even that's said in the press conference, yeah. ends up, you know, being you know, published online somewhere, you know, within moments of it happening. So mm. it's a very different environment now. You know, you compare that to to what we came into when it was all about newspapers and you were still reading your copy over the phone. Yeah. I mean, you think about that, yeah, I know. you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, t- totally different world in, in that sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, people... It's quite fashionable to sort of look, look down your nose at journalism, but I think we need it more than ever, actually. Here, <laughs> we look at, look at the state of the world. An actual hard fact, you know, would, would, yeah. would, would be nice rather than just sort of endless opinion and, and speculation. And those days where you did have the sort of the regular crew going around... I mean, in some ways, it could be a little bit cosy, maybe. You know, it was a, it was a little bit of a clique, which I was part of, very happily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also, they would, you know, they would look after the players. I mean, there was a famous occasion, this is years ago now, when Darren Morgan lost to Dave Harold in the in the Asian Open final, oh, yeah. and and did what you were describing. Immediately came in the press room and started to sort of lambast everything, Dave yeah. himself, everything. And the journalist actually said to him, Darren, why don't you go and take ten minutes to mm. calm down? Come back in now. Now, in another scenario, they could have just reported his sort of explosive comments and made him look really bad. But mm. actually, they were thinking, no, you know, we don't need this. Just go away, come back, calm down. And then I think he was still a little bit, you know, annoyed, but yeah. he calmed down a little bit. That wouldn't happen in football, for example, would it? And it wouldn't happen nowadays in snooker. No. People would be sitting there salivating. Thinking, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Darren Morgan was, you know, was very much a top mm. player at that time. Uh, but he loved he loved to give out about the world. But it, it was just you know amusing as much as anything else. Um, some players, I think, you know, just have a very good attitude to it. They want to have something to say, but they're just not used to it. You got to yeah. remember, like a lot of these guys haven't even really had, you know, a full formal education, so it's very, very difficult for them. And you know, 
as well as that, some of them, you know, the, the kind of life they lead doesn't lend itself to, to, to great answers. Because I remember one player who I won't name because he was actually really good to deal with over the years. I was doing an interview with him when he was starting out. And I'd been asked, because it was for a magazine, ask him a bit about his lifestyle and what he does outside of the game. And he was really trying very, very hard. You know, he's obviously just played a lot of snooker. And eventually, after about a minute of trying to make out that he had all these hobbies outside <laughs> the game, he said, yeah, but mostly I'm just down the pub. <laughs> <laughs> Which was almost yeah. certainly true. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very difficult. You know, you get some players who have you know, a good attitude. It's not that they don't want to give anything, but they find it very, very difficult. And, mm. you know, we're comfortable with the sort of media environment because, you know, we've spent mm. our working lives in it. You've got to remember, yeah. you know, there's no reason why someone who's really good at playing snooker should be good yeah. at speaking to the media. Yeah. Thankfully, quite a few of them actually are. They have now, there's a kind of media training scheme. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly what that training is because um, I was sort of asked my opinion on it um, a couple of years ago. And I'd seen the thing on Sky. There was a, a sort of behind-the-scenes thing on Sky where uh, Sky Cricket, where they took some younger county cricket players, basically to go to the pub with a load of cricket journalists. Mm. Just, I'm not saying they got drunk, but they just went and socialised with them, got to know them. Like I was saying, like pleasure to come in the press room. And to me, that's arguably more valuable than sitting someone down in front of a whiteboard and, oh. and telling you, okay, if they ask you this, say yeah. this, and, and don't give this away, and, and, and mind how you sit and all that. We don't want that, actually. No, 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 we definitely don't. And, I mean, I'd say it's one of the few sports left now where you might actually have a drink with the players. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure over the years, you know, pretty much all the top players, you know, have, you know we've had a drink with them at one point or another. and you know, We've, we've allowed them to buy us a drink. We have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, they can afford it. Uh, but, I mean, that totally breaks down the barriers. Formal training, I, I don't know how much... How much value there actually is in that? I think it has a certain amount of value, but as you say, it can produce sort of formulaic answers. Mm. I remember, didn't we see some uh, sort of I don't know slideshow that had been mm. shown to young players, and uh, it said something about journalists being ego-driven and lazy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how <laughs> dare they suggest that? About yeah. Us? yeah, I know. Yeah, it's shocking, yeah. shocking, shocking, shocking. So, yeah. so sort of to conclude, then a player coming in, turning pro, bit of potential is going to be of interest to the media. What advice could we give them about dealing with the media? I guess be yourself would be a, g a good way to start. Yeah, because you know what? If you're not going to be giving great answers and great statements, that's just who you are and it's not really going to change. And of course, certainly from our point of view, we want them to be themselves and to... Well, we want them to show their emotions, you know, and if they are greatly disappointed, then, you know, let, let's hear about it and, or at least show it in some way. And as you say, sometimes even things like the Trude incident or whatever... You know that can be that can be a better story. And I mean, I remember one player, current top player, but when he was an amateur, I was covering an amateur event, big amateur event, and he lost in the deciding frame of the semi-final. I went up and said, "Can I have a word with you?" He nodded his head. I asked him one question. He started crying and walked <laughs> off. Now he he was only very young at the time, but uh, you know, if anything, you'd love it if that happened to a top mm. player. They'd probably be greatly embarrassed. But you know, and, and not because you would want to make them look bad or ridicule them or anything, mm. but you know, it'd just be. Fantastic to see that sort of uh, level of emotion. So, yeah, I suppose be yourself is the only thing. I would say the best thing to do is n almost not give them any advice. Mm. Let them go in. And as you say, Paul Hunter, who was so uncomfortable with it at the start, but just by doing it and by doing interviews and warming to it, I mean, he became wonderful to deal with mm. uh, in, his, in his later and, uh, and more successful years. You must have, though, you know, some really... You know, bad story. I don't mean I don't mean reflecting a player in a bad light, but just about an interview or something that went badly wrong. To be honest, a lot of the problems I've had have been actually arranging the interview. Oh yeah. Like, because one thing with snooker players is if you say I'll meet you here at two, it'll be three probably. Well, that's yeah. they turn up a lot. The following day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and just getting people to ring you back and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's been look, there's been down the years have been usually when someone's lost, 
you know. One thing I'll say about this podcast: everyone who's been on this, everyone who's been on this podcast has been has mm. just said yes. No one's ever refused to come on. I haven't asked everyone in the game, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no one's yeah. ever refused to come on the podcast. You know, and you can just sidle up to a player and say, "We come on," and they'll do it, and that's great. That there's not that barrier. You've got to go through agents and managers. Um, yeah, I think it depends what mood they're in. Sometimes people are, you know, have things going on that you don't know about off table, and that, that will affect their mood. But I think you know when you you know when to pick the moment. Yeah. and that that is actually, I think we would both agree, a key thing in arranging interviews mm. is, is pick the time to ask the player. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can see what kind of form they're in if they're chatting to the other players and joking. You you know, you're not going to say to them after they've lost five four in the black. Do you mind, you know, doing a half hour interview tomorrow? So, so you do learn to gauge these things. One, one thing, you know, I, I would have to say, uh, you know, when you've more foreign journalists now in the game, and there can be a bit of a language barrier, and they're also coming from a slightly different sort of media culture, you get some really really strange questions. Yeah. Like the night Stuart Bingham won the World Championship, he was asked afterwards. Um, how do you figure out the angles yeah. for the shots? Is it through a formula yeah. geometry? Yeah. Which was just the strangest thing. And Stuart actually handled it well. He said, I just couldn't honestly answer that question. <laughs> and I think the same journalist had asked Sean Murphy, who had just lost a fairly close world final and missed out on the chance of a second world title uh, 10 years after his first, how would you have felt if you'd been playing a woman tonight? <laughs> I mean, it's just so yeah. strange, but it's just a very different media culture. It was all very sort of British-based, mm. you know, when we were starting out. And uh, it's something that the players... Uh, have to get used to now in the modern game. Well, in China as well. In China, um, you get some very strange questions, and also they're all translated, so they take forever yeah. to, to sort of come back. And, and famously, when uh, when Ding won the China Open for the first time, he beat Ebden along the way, Peter Ebden. And the first question to Ebden, so it's 5 0, he's lost oh, to this yeah. young kid. And the first question was from this Chinese journalist, uh, Ebden, not Peter, mm. Ebden, how come you win World Championship? <laughs> And uh, to be fair to him, he handled it really well. I suppose you have to, really. Um, yeah, it's 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 funny. I mean, I think my advice to players, as I say, would be yourself, and also understand that snooker journalists, uh, in particular, and journalists in general, they're looking for a story, and it's not necessarily a negative story. I've seen so many times where people have tried to sell a really good story about the game mm. that makes players look good. They don't always get in the papers because sports editors aren't always interested in that. But there's no there's no real general agenda. You know, we're just trying to report the game. Some people, non snooker specialist journalists, mm. can have a bit of an yeah. agenda. They come equipped with one. And I'll give you an example: the World Championship in 2000, John Parrott, twelve eight up against Joe Swale in the last sixteen. Joe comes back to win thirteen twelve. Comes in talking about his recently departed mother, and he mm. was in tears, and what it all meant to him to be in the World Quarter Final. John comes in, and I mean, John Parrott, like, you know, great to interview and would never want to be at the centre of any uh, controversy. So uh, he comes in, and uh, I think Joe had beaten him a few times over the previous couple of seasons. And he says, and in tribute to him, saying, great player, and he's been a real pain in the neck yeah. uh, to me over the last couple of seasons. Now, he didn't mean it in any sort of bad way, he just meant he keeps beating me. He was reported the following day in one of the papers as. You know, fighting behind the scenes, you know, among <laughs> yeah. the players, calling each other a pain in the neck. Yeah. Um, so you've got to be wary of that sort of thing. I mean, that's, that's always been around mm. to some extent. People like that have the agenda, but I suppose if you're a specialist snooker journalist, you don't want to fall foul of any no. of the players. And the thing is, it's not just the player in question you'll fall foul of if you stitch him up, because he'll talk to other players because they speak to each other so mm. much. And, you know, you could really damage your future prospects for any sort of interviews and that. And it's generally worked uh, pretty well over the years, I think, the relationship between, you know, the, the established snooker media and the players. Yeah, and we'll, we'll end with Paul Hunter, who we began with. Yeah. Of course, famously, 
because he learned how to just be himself, actually, and had confidence to, to speak as himself, he ended up on the front page of a couple of newspapers mm. after the, he won the Masters for the first time with that with that Plan B stuff, and that was just an example of not being media trained and not being told what to say, yeah. just being yourself. And uh, you know what? What a credit to the sport. Um, so that's it. That's that's the media, and that's the end of this <laughs> podcast. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 